Father, we thank you for bringing us back here this afternoon for the opportunity to speak here. As part of the restoration program, Lord, I'm humbled by the way that you have shone through all that has been done. And Father, we pray that as we briefly look now through the 127th Psalm, Father, your spirit would once again be in this place, in our hearts. Father, you'd speak directly to us that there's a message I know that you have for each one of us individually. So we ask that you'd speak to us. We pray, Father, that as the Sabbath draws to a nigh, that your word would come even closer to us, that our experience with you would not also draw to a nigh. In his name we pray, amen. There's a verse in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, um, that I want to read with you because it's always kind of struck me, and it says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. I'll read it one more time. And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 presents to us a picture where we will eventually get to the point on earth where there will be only two camps. Now you can argue that there are only two camps right now, that there are those that are for, for God and those that are against Him. But you can't say that all will worship, that all are worshiping right now. But Revelation 13 verse 8 says the time is coming where all that dwell upon the earth shall worship Him. And who is the Him? It is the He that their names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So in other words, it's worship that's not centered towards God, it's worship that's centered towards the beast. Now I'm sure that you're all good uh, Bible prophecy students and you know the signs of the times and have a general picture of how things are going to wrap up. If you don't, that information is available to us through the scriptures. But and maybe I'm alone in this one, there's sometimes when I look around and I just say, how? How? Like, like I get it, logically, I can follow it through, I see the step-by-step -step process, but I think that the idea, at least for me, is sometimes challenging to get to grips with, that everyone will either worship God or worship the beast, especially when there's so many world religions right now and, and, and most of the world is, is geared away from, from religion. Sometimes, at least in the past, I struggled with seeing the how. How is this actually going to play out? How is it that the entire world will worship Him except those that worship Christ? Well, I broke it down. The world itself um, is broken into categories. We have probably the biggest being continents, and within continents we have countries. Within, within countries we have cities, and within cities we have towns. Within towns we have communities, and within communities, you know what we have within communities? Families. Families. And the biblical principle of when attacking an issue is to take an axe and do what with it? Lay it where? Lay it at the roots. It makes no sense if you're looking to destroy a tree to climb up to the top with the scissors. Are you with me? It's just going to take too long. It's not productive. By the time you get to the bottom, things on the top might have already regrown. If you want to really destroy something, you attack it right at the roots. 
All the world shall worship him. How? I believe that Satan's formula has, and, and from the beginning of time has always been and still is now, to attack the root of the world, to attack the family. Because if you win the family, then you win, period. And Psalms 127 really is kind of the family psalm. I believe that one of the chief reasons that Satan has such strong attacks for the family is that we're told that the family is essentially the greatest representation of the Godhead that we have here on earth. The Bible says in 1 John 4, 8, that he that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is what? God is love. 1 John 5, 7 says that there are three that bear witness in heaven. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. God is love, and He is singularity in plurality. And we don't really have any other symbol of this other than the family, where the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2, And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife and they shall be as how many flesh? One flesh. In the same way that the Father, the Son, and the Holy... Well, not in exactly the same way, but similarly to how the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost are separate beings, yet the same, is when we're looking at the family, it is the closest thing on earth that we have that represents that. We have two completely different people coming together in unison. And they are one flesh. I remember when we were getting premarital counseling... Always a better idea to get that than postmarital counseling, if possible. Um, but when we were getting premarital counseling, um, our pastor came and said to us that it's important that we're very different. It's important that we're different from one another. One, because no one really wants to marry themselves. Um, but two, because if we're both the same, then one of us is unnecessary. If everything we do, if we have exactly the same interests, exactly the same personality, exactly the same hobbies, exactly the same likes, and I mean, I mean, really and truly, you can love yourself, sure, but to the degree that you want to marry yourself, I think is, is about 5,000 steps too far. If you're both the same, then one of you is unnecessary, and there's something, there's something that just can't be matched or compared to, there's something about two individuals coming together in matrimony, being united, and it working. There's something about seeing a family, there's something about seeing a marriage that just testifies that God is doing something, that there's a special work going on there. I believe that's why we see such a heavy attack on marriage today. Because marriage is the union by which a man and a woman can come together as one flesh. And there are three in heaven that are one. There is an attack. Satan no longer has direct access to the throne of God. He can no longer just show up in heaven and start, and start throwing railing accusations at the Father. And so naturally, his gaze has shifted to attacking the closest thing to that which is the family. 
which is the family. This, I guess, would also kind of help us to understand why there is, too, a serious attack, if not a more serious attack, on sex and sexuality. The world is changing, have you realized? The world is changing. This is not the same world that I grew up in, and I'm 27. When I grew up, you were a boy or a girl. That's, and it, might, it might sound strange, but that's how it was back in the day. <laughs> but there's been an attack on these things. There's been an attack because, because I think that people don't, they're not seeing it. They're not seeing the symbol of heaven in marriage anymore. They're not seeing the union that God said we were all meant to see when a husband, when a, when a man leaves his home and joins himself to a wife. It's not as special. They're not seeing how effective it was meant to be as the gospel message. You know, it's meant to be the gospel message, right? The influence that one family can have, we're told, is greater than a hundred sermons. One family. Just one. That's like five years of restoration, by the way. One family. The influence that one family can have is greater than the influence of five of these things, as great as they are. Psalms 127, verse 1. We'll go through all five verses. Except the Lord, read it with me, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. This is kind of echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, For we are laborers together with God, ye are God's husbandry, ye are God's building. We're told in verse 1 that there is a group of people, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. In other words, there's people that are building houses without God. There's people that are building homes without God. There's people that are starting families without the Lord being that foundation. Jesus spoke of this in Matthew chapter 7 when he spoke about the man who built his house upon the what? The man that built his house upon the sand. The foundation was not the rock. The foundation was the sand. Now, did he build the house? Did he build the house? Yes, there was a house. Are you with me? There was a definite house, and we don't know how long the house was standing, but we know that the house was standing because it took a storm to come and knock it down. And this is the thing. For a while, it may look like, well, there's a house. I've been building, and I've been building, and I've been building, and you said I have to build it with the Lord, but I haven't really been building with the Lord, and yet you have a house, and I have a house. Both houses look the same. The house that's built on the rock looks, looks the same as the house that's built on the sand. The difference is the storm. The difference is that the storm comes and reveals that there's one thing that the wise man had that the foolish man didn't. See, nowadays, I don't, I don't believe that a lot of us are making the decision to just build on the sand. We've got this kind of mixture, right? We build on the sand and the rock, try and have the best of both worlds. I'll build my house according to most of God's guidelines, but there's some that I just don't think are necessary anymore. 
What happens with that house, the kind of middle ground house, is the first storm comes and doesn't knock the house down. It just shakes it a little bit. It just, as you can, if you can picture it in your mind, the house of both rock and sand, the first storm comes and just gets rid of the sand. So now the rock is there, but it's got holes. So when the next storm comes, it's wavering, it's shaking, it's all over the place. Except the Lord build the house. Who's meant to build the house? Now again, we don't take this, um, and we learned this this morning, we don't take this as just, I'm just going to sit back and the Lord's going to build the house. Again, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that we are co-workers with the Lord. Amen? Co-workers with the Lord. We are, we are builders. Except the Lord keep the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. In ancient times, the strength of the city was identified by how well fortified it was by, by its walls. The greater the walls, the greater the defenses of the city were seen to have. It said of Babylon that they could raise two chariots on top of the walls that surrounded the city. This is, this is how great the city was and subsequently magnified its fall. And each great city, even if, even if it, in fact, even if it was a smaller city, they would have what was known as a watchman. Someone or multiple men that would stay on the wall and their, their sole job was to look out across the horizon and keep their eyes open for any possible threats. And if they saw something that looked like it could endanger the city, they would then sound a trumpet or sound something that made a lot of noise so that everyone within the city would be able to say, okay, danger is incoming, we need to be ready. Except the Lord build the house. Except the Lord build the house. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. I think what the psalmist is trying to tell us is this. That if the family, if the family is this house, then there needs to be a watchman. Are you with me? There needs to be a watchman. And the watchman needs to be attuned to the possible dangers that are about to come in and break down the family. The thing is, the devil's smart. He's not trying to get into the house yet. His first attack is always going to be on the watchman. Because if you take out the watchman, are you with me? If you take out the watchman, then you've got free entry into the home. If you take out he that is meant to be standing guard then everyone inside is just going to think that it's fine. And when the enemy comes in, it's going to be too late for them to react. And so the attack, the first attack, the smart tactical attack is always on the watchman. And I believe that Satan's efforts have not changed. His tactics and his strategy remain the same. If he can get the fathers, if he can get the husbands, if he can get the men whose divine role has been given for them to stand as watchguards over their home, and if he can plunge them into sin, if he can distract them away from their duties, their God-given duties, then he has free access. Free access. And this is not undermining the strength of the women or the, or the perseverance of the children, nothing like that. This is just saying that God has said, this is how it's meant to go, and I'm going I'm to keep it like this. Except the Lord keeps the city. I'm going to make sure that it's set up so that it has the best possible chance of success. 
But there is, I believe, to a greater degree, a quite formidable attack on our, on our men, our young men, and on our older men. Because the devil knows if he can get us, then he's got access to those around us. That's why he's starting so young. Because if you can get them while they're young, then you've got them when they're older. Some of us, yeah, we're experiencing those difficulties. We're experiencing the attacks of the enemy to try and get into our home, to try and mess up our families, to, to try and destroy the image of God. But how much easier is this battle if you can just corrupt them while they're young? How much easier is this battle if you can just say to your children, hey, here's an iPad. Just control yourself. Just keep yourself. Mommy's busy. Daddy's busy. Here, go. Here's the TV. Sit in front of the TV. Here's YouTube. Go and have fun. I'll come back when I finish making dinner. How much easier it is to break the family down if you can corrupt the boys, if you can corrupt the young men, if you can send them to colleges and send them to universities where they'll be surrounded by licentiousness so much to the point that they're trying and they're trying and they're trying and they're trying to persevere. But if you were there on, on, on Friday afternoon, they don't have a why behind their no. They just know that they shouldn't. They've been, they've been raised half-heartedly into thinking that this is wrong and so I won't do it. But what happens is we start to question whether we really should not do that. If it really is bad, if it really is evil, or if it's just harmless and an old Christian tradition. And we start to make compromises. And these compromises, though you may be single and though there may be no one that you're interested in, these compromises are being sent your way now so that when you do unite with someone, you're already broken. Satan would rather nothing than to get a broken young man and a broken young woman and bring them into holy matrimony in the church to, to help them rise up in, his, in, in positions and send them into, into influential places where they can be pastors and doctors and, and dentists and business owners and all of these great things, knowing that he runs the home. Except the Lord keep the city. They labor in vain that build it. Verse 2. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. I'm just going to be real with you guys. Can I be real with you guys? It's vain. I don't have children, but I imagine the day will come when I do, right? She said yes. <laughs> but even without having children, I feel the burden to provide. It's a healthy burden, by the way. Yeah, it's a burden that I feel all men of the home should have. The burden to feel like they have to provide for their home. I feel it. The temptation, though, is to disregard this verse. The temptation is to rise up early and go to bed late and eat the bread of sorrows. 
The temptation is to spend so much time, listen to me, the temptation is to spend so much time trying to provide that we have neglected growth. The temptation is to be like, hey, listen, I'm out there, I'm winning the bread, I'm winning the bread. But what is the point of putting bread on Satan's table? What is the point of going out there and working 24-7 and running yourself into the ground and turning those nice brown hairs gray if at your home your children don't respect their mother? And the reason why they don't respect their mother is because you're not home to respect their mother. We've become so focused on work and providing and being, and being these strong macho men that we haven't actually stopped to ask, have my children seen me care for my wife? Have my children seen me sit down and, and just tell my wife, not because she dressed up or not because it's Sabbath, have my children seen me tell, wow, you're beautiful. Man, how did God bless me with you? The way you care, the way you love. But we're providing though, Amen. Amen, we're providing, we're out there, and you're eating, you're surviving, but I'll just tell you this, can I tell you this from, from experience? Survival for our women is actually not priority number one. Breaking news, it's not survival. It's not survival, it's love. And yeah, you can say I'm showing love through providing, but that's just not how it works. Your children expect the bread. But are they growing up with an actual godly man in their life? An influence where they don't just have to read about Jesus and wonder if he really exists, but know that he must exist because he's like daddy. Wow. There's a reason why God put it on Nehemiah's heart to go back and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah knew once he got in, the only way this job is going to get done is if, I'm not just going to get everyone together and say, hey, let's go and rebuild the wall. My tactic, my strategy is saying, you know what? I don't want you to build the whole wall. Just build the wall outside of your house. That's what he said. Every man, take your sword in one hand and your brick in the other and build the wall closest to your house. Look after your home because if everyone looks after their home, the wall is built and Satan is literally just fairy dancing into the church because there's no walls. Most of the time, because there's no builders. They're outside the city building other people's walls. And we wonder why we're failing. We wonder why we have such a powerful message, but such cold hearts. We wonder why people are leaving our church knowing full well that the Adventist message is truth, but they're becoming members of other denominations knowing full well that it's not the truth. It's because they're seeing the truth. And the truth for us is we're not building. We're not building. And for a city in this time, it was the worst idea ever 
to try and build up the inside of your city before building the walls. Because every time that it looked like something promising was happening, the enemy would just come and take it all. The history of the Old Testament is, is basically the pillagings of Israel. It is vain to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. I'm speaking to the men here. Your duty is more than a check. Your duty is to imprint the character of Jesus Christ on your home. For that to happen, it needs to be imprinted on you first. It's vain. Vain to spend your time getting up at 4 a.m. and working all manners of the day and getting home at 10 and feeling like now that makes you a man. When your wife is at home, slaving 24-7, you work 16 hours and you think you're the guy. You're not getting up at 2 in the morning to feed no one, though. Right? You get to sleep well. Vain. Except the Lord build the house. Except the Lord keep the city. Then the third verse says, Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is His reward. The children are the heritage of the Lord. Essentially, they're borrowed to us by God. God is giving us something that He expects to get back, and He expects to get it back with interest. He expects to get it back better than when He gave it. And I love this verse. If you're here last night, you know why. Because the fruit of the womb is His reward. You know what it doesn't say? I'll just be real. It doesn't say the fruit of the womb that was conceived in marriage is his reward. It doesn't say that. If there's fruit in the womb, it's God's reward. I don't care how it got there. I remember once that there was this young lady that I knew. She got pregnant out of wedlock. Happens. I'm not trying to devalue it or undermine it. It happens. It's not great, but it happens. Here's what she heard from the pastor. It's just biology. It's just biology. Now, is biology involved? Of course it's involved. Of course it's involved. But nothing gets life without God saying so. The fruit of the womb is his reward. If you're here, it's because God is the one that blessed you with life, not biology. No mistakes in God's kingdom, no accidents. And even though the circumstances may be less than ideal, maybe even sinful in fact, doesn't mean that your life isn't meant to be. Doesn't mean that your life is less valuable than those that were conceived in the proper way. The fruit of the womb is God's reward. 
The fruit of the womb is God's reward. Satan is trying to destroy the home. Your home. And my home. Except the Lord is that builder. Now I'm not saying that Jesus isn't in your home. I'm just saying when I read Revelation chapter 3, He's outside. You see that? He's outside the house. Trying to get in. I think Jesus wants to get in the house. What about you? But you see, oftentimes what we do is instead of having Jesus as the house master, we have him as the house mascot. Where it's cool when people come to kind of parade Jesus to them. You know? Oh, I'm Christian. Look. Jesus. And, this, and look in my fridge. Tofu. <laughs> right? Like, whew. can't touch me. I'm glowing, you just can't see it. We treat Jesus in such a way that it's almost like, and yeah, I'm speaking about myself. I'm not trying to pretend. Where, 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 we, where we, when people are around, oh, let's just talk about Jesus, right? At potluck, let's just talk about Jesus. And on Sabbath, because that's the day to talk about Jesus, right? Right? Isn't that the day? Which day? It's Sabbath, right? Sabbath is when we talk about Jesus. Every day, Arden. What? Every day. Novel thought. Next verse is one of my favorites. I mean, there's only five, so. As arrows are. As what? As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. As arrows are in the hand, listen, listen. Men, the mighty man isn't you in this verse. Just, just saying. This is a trained one, a skilled warrior. He carries a quiver around, he goes to battle every single day. And all he wants to know is that there's going to be enough arrows. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. You see, here's the thing, and I struggle with this one, I do. I struggle when I think of how our young people are used in ministry. Can I be real? I sat in a board meeting once, and our young people just, they, they'd stopped coming to church. The idea was put forth in the board meeting to make some of them deacons. The idea was to make some of them deacons because we felt, and I include myself in the we because I was part of the board meeting, that what young people wanted was responsibility. And so if we made them deacons, that they'd feel responsible and, and then they'd start coming to church. Now if that's not the most ridiculous thing you've heard all day, then I don't know where you've been. Because in my time working within youth ministry, you know what I've seen? That what young people want, and forget about what they need for a second, but what young people want and what young people desire is not responsibility. 
They don't just want to take over from your position. Do you know what they want? And, and this is going to sound like it came straight out of the 1800s. They want an example. They want an example. You see, what's been happening for most of our lives is that we've grown up in families where we've called ourselves Christian and we've seen that we're Christian when we've gone to church, but at home we, we see a different picture. We see what dad is like at church. The saying goes like, he's like Superman on the pulpit and Clark Kent at home. Looks great, all polished up there, but when you take him off the pulpit and you put him in the house and there's even the slightest disagreement, he's weak. There's no, there's no, there's no superhuman capabilities anymore because he's not surrounded with those that he's trying to impress. He's surrounded by those that know him. And we've seen the way our mothers walk into church and they're so well put together and, you know, and the hair's all did and nails are nice and shoes are all sparkling and she walks in and she couldn't look more like the perfect woman. But then we've seen what happens. We've seen what happens when she's at home and we've seen what happens when she decides that, that you know, that, that this kind of life that God has given her isn't the one that she wants and, and she has higher aspirations than to just train young people to be arrows in the Lord's quiver. We've seen what happens when, when Christianity only really exists in church. And when at home we're just like every other family because we go to school and we hear about the families of the world and we realize my family is just like that. We just, we just say grace before meals. And even still we just say it quietly anyways. What we need is an actual picture of who God is, because we were all designed to imitate, and if we have nothing in the church to imitate, then there's something in the world that will grab our attention. It's not positions and responsibility, it's an example of the character of Christ. That is what will motivate your young people to actually want to live and work for Jesus if they see him. But if they're coming to church and all they're hearing about is politics and traditions and conservatism and liberalism and women's ordination and the nature, if all we're hearing is those things, we're going to think that the church is just a melting pot of actual crazy people. Let's be real. We've got an incredibly large number of weird people in our midst. And we've brushed it aside and said, well, you know, it's because we need to be, you know, what's the word? What's the silly word that we've just completely misinterpreted? I don't remember what it is. Peculiar. Peculiar. <laughs> it's a great word. God has called us to be a peculiar people, but he hasn't called us to be strange. He hasn't called us to look like there's two species, that there's humans and then there's Adventists. The point was not to be so strange from the world that if there's strange people in the world, they feel like they fit in more with us. The point was to be representatives. The point was to be examples. 
And nothing is a better example of who God is than a well-ordered family. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man. It used to be, in our church at least, it used to be that young people did stuff. It used to be that when things happened, it's because the young people went out. It's because the young people were witnesses for Christ. It's because the young people took initiative and didn't wait for someone to tell them if it was a good idea. It's because the young people didn't really care too much whether rejection was around the corner. They just went forward in faith that God was going to bless but what's happened is we've, and, and this is just systemic, it's come from the top, it's come from our parents and their parents and their parents, and no doubt if we don't change the trend, it will come from us too. We're arrows, do you know what arrows are? They're weapons, but guess what arrows don't do? They don't curve, they don't bend, they don't change direction. If you put an arrow into a bow and pull it back, whatever you aim it at, it will hit. So if you spend your entire time as parents training young people and the sole focus of that training is education, then don't be surprised when they become PhDs that don't know Jesus. Because that's what you were aiming them the whole time. There was God and there was education and they wanted to go on mission trips, but you wanted them to go to summer school. So you just fired the arrow and then they hit it and you're all excited at graduation you know, we stand there, pictures. <laughs> but we know the home's a mess. And we know that their home's going to be a mess because we know they've got a degree, but they don't have Jesus in their life. Because they just hit what we've aimed them at. Wherever we've pointed, we pointed at a secular lifestyle, they become secular. We pointed at merely just education. We just create very intelligent hypocrites. That's not the gospel. Now, don't twist these words. I'm not saying drop out of school. But maybe some of you need to, though. Maybe some of you need to. I had to. Maybe some of us need to get the picture of the nice house and the nice car and the nice suit and the nice furniture, and the big fancy paycheck out of our mind, and we need to settle for the huts, and we need to settle for the dirt, and we need to settle for the red ground, right? And we need to settle for the actual poverty that's out there that other people have no choice but to live in. Maybe that's where we need to be. And guess what? The missionary field doesn't need PhDs. I'm sorry. They don't need you. Now, sure, they need a good nurse or a good doctor or something, but they don't need the most educated. They just need the most willing. And, and if you haven't figured this out yet, that's what God needs too. Drives me mad when I'm sitting in actual church services and the person is introduced as Dr. So-and-so, PhD, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. I don't care. Do you know Jesus? Because if you don't know Jesus, you've no right to stand on the pulpit. You've no right to be sharing your medical research. Go and do that at a hospital. If I care, I'll go. But when I come here, I come here for the word. When I come here, I come to hear what Jesus has to say. I don't care what your title is. Sure, you need to know your stuff. 
but you're not going to smart your way into the kingdom. Give me the real stuff. Let me know that you're a Christian that struggled. Let me know that, yes, you too fall into sin. Let me know that even though you're a 38-year-old man that's married with four kids, that sometimes you fall into pornography and masturbation. Let me know that sometimes, yeah, sure, you're a 60-year-old woman, but there was a time when you slept around and done all kinds of foolishness. Not to parade your sin, but so that we can see that there's actual humans in our midst that Christ has worked with. So we don't feel like the, the odd one's out. So we don't feel like we have to hide everything and keep it all in. Because everyone else looks like aliens. Everyone else looks like it was just this generation that got caught up in this mess. And we have no idea how to get out of it. Yet we're called arrows. Here's the thing. Young people were designed to hurt. They were designed to cause impact. They were designed to pierce, to frighten, to cause a little bit of chaos, to disrupt the norm. If you're walking around, you know, walking through a trail and there's arrows flying right past you, you're not going to keep walking, are you? You know that there's, there's something around that has the potential to inflict major damage. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are the children of the youth. God has designed young people to be dangerous, to be a little bit extreme. All we've had to do is point them in the right direction. They'll hit the target. What happens, though, is we ourselves have become untrained. So though we have the arrow, we haven't really pointed it very well. And what happens is it does pierce. It comes back and pierces us. And then we're the ones that are hurt. And we don't know why our children have hurt us, but the likelihood is that that's just been the way that we've pointed them all the time. We brought them up in broken homes, and when we're 65 years old, now we're praying because we don't understand why our children's homes are broken. It's just copy and paste. They're arrows, guys. I mean, you have a university with thousands of young people pushed to the side for apparent weapons that couldn't be blunter if they tried. Josiah's a great example. Eight years old, the guy was rooting up trees. It's impactful because they can see that they're young. It's what got me interested in Christ in the first place. It wasn't the message. It was the fact that I saw other young people that actually believed it. And I was like, what? It's working for them? They're 23. They're 23. How is it working for them? Now, I don't understand it. But I've seen that it's changed their life. I've heard their friends say what they used to be like and how they're no longer anything like that. They're almost unrecognizable. And I'm seeing that it's working for them. So I'm like, okay, I'm in. Change me then. Use me then. It's not rocket science. We were always meant to be weapons. It shouldn't be a surprise when there's pain. 
The difference is the pain was meant to be inflicted on the enemy's kingdom. And you know what you do if you want to inflict maximum damage with an arrow? You set it on fire. Because if, you, if you've got a quiver and there's an arrow in there that's on fire, does anyone know what happens to the rest of the arrows? They light up. If you take out an arrow and then you set it on fire, whatever you hit, there's going to be maximum damage. Are you with me? Everything around that target is going to get lit up. But what happens is we take out the arrow and we look at it, and you know what we say? Well, this arrow isn't really trained well enough. Let me put it back in the quiver. This, this arrow doesn't really have enough experience. So let me put it back in the quiver. This arrow hasn't finished their education, so therefore they're not ready for ministry. Said Jesus to the 12 disciples, right? Or did he choose 12 people that hadn't finished their education? Did he choose 12 people that were not the finished product? Did he choose 12 people knowing full well that one of them was the devil? But still put him in a position where he could reach out to others. Still put him in a position where hopefully through ministry he'd be awakened to his own need. Put him in charge of the money, mind you. I'd like to see that done today. Arrows. Weapons. Where are you pointing them? What's the target? Because chances are they'll hit it. The last verse. Verse 5, Psalms 127, verse 5, it says this. Happy. Happy is the man. Happy is the man that has his quiver full of them. Happy is the man. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of arrows. Happy is the man whose house is filled with children. Happy is the man. I want to be happy. Baby, is that all right? <laughs> One day I want to be happy. I want to be very, very happy. Like, exceedingly happy. <laughs> happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. You know why? They shall not be ashamed. They won't be ashamed of their calling. They won't be ashamed of the fact that they are meant to be weapons in the hand of a mighty man. Do you know what they'll do? They shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Happy is the man. Should I tell you why he's happy? Because the man has worked hard. Happy is the man because he's worked hard not just at providing the bread, but he's worked hard at making sure those young people of whom he is responsible are growing up knowing Jesus. Happy is the man because the time comes when he can sit down. Happy is the man because the time comes when he can sit down knowing that the enemy is at the gate. Knowing that his work, the work that he has been cooperating with the Lord, has worked so far to the point that he can sit at home, that he can come off the top of the wall and he can look at his child and say, you deal with it. 
The enemy's trying to come in. But my quiver's full of arrows. Come and try me. Come and try and break down my home now. Now that I've sharpened them, now that I've trained them, now that I've used them, and now that they're ready for the battle that comes every single day to my door, though, though they know it not, now I'm going to be able to just sit back. Because I've got kids that love Jesus. Amen. I've got kids that are willing to be used as weapons in this army. Happy. You ask a man what he wants in his life, especially a married man, and the one thing that he'll tell you if his head is screwed on and if Christ is in his heart is that he wants his children to know Jesus. Amen. Happy is the man when his little boy grows up and moves out of the house and that man knows that that, that, that young boy, that newly formed man is going to build another strong tower for Jesus. That he is going to build a home that reflects the image of God. That his family will be a symbol of the family in heaven. The gate was the place of judgment. It's the place where the important people would sit and make all the right decisions. Happy is the man when his children are there when the young people are running the show, when the young people are able to fight the battles that we've been fighting for so long. But this is the end product of verse 1. This is the end product of the foundational building of the home that begins when you as an individual choose to become a co-laborer with Jesus Christ. I believe with all my heart that this is the answer. That we would see such a reformation and such a revival in our church, in our, on our campuses, as big as they may be, all over the world, if we would just first give our homes to Christ, if we would make him the cornerstone as opposed to the ornament, if we would trust that through cooperating with him and the principles that he has given us to live godly lives, that he would give his beloved sleep, that he would help us to rest in the fact that his character is seen in husband, wife, and child. That's my prayer for me. I mean, I can pray it for you too if you want me to, but it's my prayer for me. <laughs> that people would see Jesus in my home. It's the struggle. No, 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 it's a struggle, guys. It's tough. There's times after a long day, I just want to go home and go to bed. I'm tired. I'm 27. Can you imagine when I'm 54? Pray for me, man. I'm a young man. There's people that have been doing this for 30 years more than me. I don't know how. But it's not easy. Being that watchman is tough. 
Many times I've fallen asleep on top of the tower and Satan's come in and just pillaged my home. But every time it happens, the grace of God is there to tell me, Dean, get back on top of the wall. Here's your trumpet back. Now watch. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because the adversary is going around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I don't want my wife devoured. I don't want my children to be devoured because I wasn't ready to really commit to Jesus. Because I came and preached all of these series and gave the idea that I was some holy Christian, but at home I was broke. I want Jesus in my home. I want Jesus in my marriage. I want Jesus in my family. I want to be the watchman that God has asked me to be. But you know the saying. It takes a village to raise a child. It takes a community to help build up a family. Look out for those that are around you. You don't know if they're struggling. You don't know how much I'm struggling. You're trying to build, but you keep getting beaten down by the world. You keep getting beaten down by these apparent responsibilities. And it's tough. Many people have just stopped. Stop building half-built homes. Looks good from one side, doesn't exist on the other. <laughs> God has called me and you, men and women, into relationships where we are building homes and families for the glory of God. I pray that you'd accept that calling on your life. As far away as that may seem, we know that the decisions that we make now affect even the third and fourth generation. Never mind affecting this very generation that you're in. Your choices matter, all of them. Who you are today helps define and shape who you'll be when you stand with that other special person and begin to start something that is going to be rather unique. Choose to make the right decisions now. Choose to start the building work today. Let the Lord build you. Because you labor in vain if you try and build you by yourself. Father, we want to ask, Lord, that you would help us in our homes. Help us to be real, genuine Christians. In fact, let's take a step back. Help us just to know you. How can we be like you if we don't know you? And you've given us so much to know you by. You've given us your word. You've given us nature. You've given us, Lord, experiences. You've given us revelation of your character. Father, I want to be a better builder. I want my home to be a light for your kingdom. We want our homes, Lord, to be representative of the family of heaven. Father, I pray especially for the young men in here that are one day going to grow up to be watchmen. That, Father, you help them to see the special calling that you've put on their life. That you help them to see 
that, yes, sure, they're young and they can have fun, but they need to be serious about the fact that the person that they're becoming today is going to be who they are later. And Father, we are so grateful that you stepped in in that process, that you've taken the terrible decisions that we've made and turned them around for your glory. We thank you, Lord, that though our house should have fallen long ago, that you've been at work in the foundations. We thank you, Lord, that whilst we've been out waking up early and coming back late, you've been the Father in our home when we've been absent. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be more like Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.